to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. We're so glad that you have joined us today. Thanks for taking the time. Hope you're walking, driving, or just sitting down, relaxing, enjoying your day. This uh, episode, I sit down and share some space with George Valetzianos from Royal Roads University. He's an advocate for flexible delivery. He wrote a book called Learning Online. This is his latest book, Learning Online, The Student Experience. If you haven't picked it up yet and read it, why not? It's a great book. It's got a great perspective on it. We sit down and we chat a little bit about his book. We chat about design with humility. We talk about isolation. We talk about engagement, all these different things. He brings a great perspective. You're going to love it. Thanks for taking the time. We'll see you on the other side. Take care. record and three two one hey everybody welcome back to praxis pedagogy podcast so glad you've taken the time to be with us today today's guest i am really excited and honored to have him with us is uh is george valetzianos from royal roads university and i think one of the reasons i can pronounce your last name george well is that my wife is half greek her dad was born in Thessalonica uh, in Northern Greece, moved to Athens. They still have a house there, although dad's passed away now, but we have an uncle, Athemios, who's still there. And uh, so we chat with him three or four times a year, but uh, I'll chalk that up to my experience with my wife because uh, her maiden name is quite long and un- almost unpronounceable. But uh, so I uh, was a perfect pronunciation for mine. So, <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'll, I'll give credit to my wife. I'll give credit where credit is due. How you doing, George? Thank you for being here. I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. George, I really wanted to chat a little bit about uh, online learning. You have done a lot of work in that arena. Uh, I bought your your latest book, Learning Online, and uh, myself, like so many other people, have pancaked our way through <laughs> the last 10 months, uh, almost feeling in the dark with shades on in a cave, trying to figure out, figure out our way around this, this reality that we're in. Um, and so thanks for writing the book. It's great. I love the format too, where it's, uh, the the chapter, if you, if we even call it a chapter, I don't know if you call them chapters, but, uh, they're, it's almost like reading one of your papers and then having the references at the end. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, the format was something that, um, I sort of stumbled upon and emulated. Um, I read a book from, um, a medical professional who was writing about his patient's experience experiences uh with i believe was um mental health and the way that he tried to relate them to people is basically to describe um how um these individuals were feeling and so on so that um gave me sort of you know when i was reading that book i was like this is a really cool idea because it kind of you know gets me uh really to understand um this phenomenon not just from like a medical standpoint right um so i thought i would i would emulate it so when i went to my publisher i basically said hey i read this book and it was great can i do something similar I'm like that sounds like a neat idea so that's that's what happened so every every chapter begins with 
you know, student's story and experience. And then I go on to unpack that experience and sort of explain what it means and what it means and, um, and so on. Good. What, what was one of the things that stuck out to you the most when you were doing your research for the book and, and talking to people and, and building the body of the book? What, what was some of the things that stuck out to you the most? Um, that's a, that's a great question. Um, one of the early, I guess, lessons, uh, for me was that there's the body of work around online and distance learning is huge, right. And, um, and spans so many decades. Um, and many people have done work on it over the years. Um, so when, and of course this is something that I knew, but, you know, to write a book, you have to sort of gather everything into one place and go through all of that in sort of a systematic way. Um, so when I was going through this sort of collection process and, uh, and thematic analysis process to figure out what each chapter is going to talk about, I was just struck by this notion that there's this, all this body of work, um, but when you read about online learning in the news or in the mass media or in know, promotional materials from educational technology companies or something, they often frame it as being new, right? So, um, so that was one area I think that uh, became uh, clear from the very beginning. Uh, another area that, um, that struck me was this notion of sort of repetitiveness and, and essentially rediscovering the same ideas over and over. So it seemed like um, you might read about a topic, right? So say feelings of isolation for students in, you know, in distance and online courses. And you'll come out across that phenomenon in like literature in the 1970s. And then you'll come across it again in the 80s and 90s. and you know, in this day and age, right? Like I was reading uh, an announcement from a U.S. institution yesterday, and he talked about how uh, they realized that their students were feeling isolated in their online courses. I'm like, okay, why? Like, why is this a realization now? Like, you should have sort of known about this. Um, you know, in March, like last March, when we were talking about you know, sort of, um, transitions to remote, right. Um, beyond that, I think one of the main lessons, um, in the book as, um, or in, maybe interesting is a better character characterization of it. Um, is the idea that, uh, emotions, students, emotions are sort of closely intertwined with participation in, in online courses. So people often think about online learning as being sort of this detached experience, this sort of delivery of content to the learner uh, that sometimes can be improved by expanding interactions between faculty and students and between students and students. But I think it goes beyond that. Like there's strong emotions associated with uh, being a student in this course, even decide, sorry, in, in this context, even deciding to pursue um, online courses might have strong emotions associated to it. For example, you might read of, you know, people who are not able to 
attend university, but online learning opened up options for them and for their life and for their future and so on. So I think that's something important to acknowledge and, and recognize. Um, you know, I guess at, at the sort of macro level, um, the most interesting part of this for me is just people's stories, like how people come to online learning, um, you know, their aspirations, the challenges that they face, how they address those challenges, their resiliency. Um, yeah, how online learning sometimes can be better than alternatives, how it can be worse. Um, just the complicated nature of it. Um, I think we do a disservice to education when we describe it as sort of this um, uniform, singular thing, regardless of its modality. So that's what I was just trying to, you know, um, explain in the book and, and really you know, struggle with and understand better. Yeah. Well, you do a, a really good job at the beginning of reminding us that the, the argument of one being better than the other is not necessarily a good argument. Um, what are some things to be aware of when, if I'm transitioning, but if I am, I already have, I teach a couple of nice <laughs> schools already. Right. Um, but, uh, and and they've all been online since March last year, which seems weird to say now, right? March mm -hmm. last year. I mean, I caramba, but uh, yeah. And, and I, I was already in the mindset of blended learning would be great. And and I love the face-to-face. -face. Like I, I love the interaction that I have, but um, what would you, what would you recommend for a guy like me who is still relatively new to the online world? Um, what were some things that you would recommend to me to watch out for, to not get sucked in by or deceived by, or to maybe a rabbit hole to, to be aware of that I don't go too, de too deep down into? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and, um, and before I answer, I should, uh, I think we need to, um, draw a little bit of a distinction between, you know, sort of well-planned online learning that, you know, takes time to be um, fleshed out and planned for compared to, you know, immediate transitions into an alternative approach that's sort of guided by emergency needs, right? Um, as even though they're sort of both um, online, if you will, there's the context around them is different, right? Um, so, but there are, I think, some basic um, maybe elements that apply in both situations. Um, one of which I think is um, trying for a faculty member to try to avoid to throwing their stu students sort of into the deep end with a bunch of technologies, right? We, I see, I often see people who are new to online learning, um, you know, get excited by the tools, right? And say, okay, we're going to do podcasts and we're going to do uh, animated videos and we're going to do, um, you know, the simulations and so on. And, and you guys can do a debate online. And, um, and then eventually they, you know, they add to their students plate essentially five or six technologies that they now have to learn to figure out how they can use to meet so the course objectives um and that demands a lot from students right because not only they're trying to learn the content um but they're also trying to figure out how they can use these technologies and figure out how they actually connect to what it is that they're trying to learn 
so I think we should be careful with our excitement about tools. Uh, I think tools help with particular um, practices that we might have or particular needs that we might have, but there's no need to overdo it. And sometimes sort of low tech options work really well, right? So, um, I sometimes have phone calls with my students because you know it just it's easier. <laughs> yeah, it's easier. You do what? You use your phone? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, and um, and you might um, you know, instead of schedule, you know, trying to schedule a Zoom call and figure out, okay, like, do I need to take a, the, you know, do I need to be wearing a, a button-down shirt today? Or can I still be in my hoodie <laughs> like I am right now <laughs> and, you know, and have a conversation. Right. Right. Um, so, um, so yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that low tech options work, right. It's um, maybe we can do things within the learning management system this week and next week and, and don't necessarily need to go embrace all these social media tools and figure out, you know, issues that relate to them that students might need to be aware of. Right. So before I, ask my students, for example, to be on social media, I'm going to need to have conversations about issues such as professionalization, harassment online, you know, like the permanency of um, sort of the online record and those things. Uh, so maybe we don't need to deal with these things at this particular time and we can, you know, evade the sort of the conversations around that. Um, so that, that's one thing. Another thing that people tend to do, I think, in general, and not just at this particular point in time, is to um, overload our students. I have seen reading lists that are incredibly long that um, we assign to people without necessarily then inviting them to have deep and meaningful engagement with all of the materials that we are assigning. And I think that became particularly clear in March of last year, when in that immediate transition, people started asking whether everything that was on the reading list or on the syllabus, whether it was necessary to be there. And I think that sort of invites a conversation around um, what particular outcomes we need our students to achieve, um, how we're attending to those outcomes, um, and essentially asking deep questions about what is truly important here and what is a priority versus what is an add-on. Um, I'm not saying that's a problem, you know. Um, sort of, um, I guess, a universal problem. All I'm saying is that that's something to be wary of. Um, and I fall into that trap myself. And I see, you know, readings or um, new journal papers that come out. I'm like, oh, I would, I would really like my students to read that and that and this and, you know, engage with this author and that author. Um, but I think at some point we need to figure out, okay, what is necessary and how does that um, sort of an added reading, say, expand our students' uh, perspectives and viewpoints and engages them in different ways than what we already have sort of on the syllabus. 
Um, yeah, I mean, those are, uh, I guess, two areas that, um, that I would tend to think about as, you know, I start thinking about uh, maybe a new course or a transition to a new course. Um, but at this particular point in time, I think it's really important to consider that the environment we find ourselves in is not normal and that our students, just like in March, um, are facing um, a whole slew of, um, um, I guess, new environments around them. So um, I would approach any design with sort of um, with humility and um and sort of respect of what students might be facing um so i think and i think that's a little bit different than what um a sort of design of an online course in 2005 or 2015 would look like right um so yeah in um in the first uh, chapter, I just call them chapters. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was the idea of reframing the concern uh, that we have of what we're doing in education around the terms of pedagogy. And in this quote came to me that how can our pedagogy resist the new pressures of the business of education? Um, do you have any insights or comments about that? How can, our, <laughs> how can our pedagogy resist the new pressures of the business of education? That's a, that's a loaded question maybe, but. I wrote that. I wrote that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course I did. Um, yeah. So I think education faces very many pressures. Um, and um, I think it is often assumed that um online education is sort of more prone to neoliberal forces and sort of pressures for profit and, and those kinds of things and in some cases that's uh, that's likely true but that doesn't mean that um every other modality isn't also faced facing the same pressures um so you often hear people critique online learning as you know being this um essentially impoverished attempt to um convert education to a commercialized enterprise um but i think what that critique misses is that our face-to-face -face courses are also uh, experiencing the same pressures. So, so then for me, the question becomes, well, how do I, in my own classroom, in my pedagogy, sort of in the, and not just my own classroom, but basically in the areas where I have some power to do something different, um, how can I resist those pressures if I think that those pressures are, are problematic? Um, so, um, in some areas where I think um, there's intersections in in my content is around this idea of you know educational technology and what it allows, 
but also what it um, sort of reproduces in the classroom. Uh, so some of the conversations around technologies and what they bring in our classrooms, such as you know surveillance technologies. Uh, some of the conversations around big data. Um, so those kinds of things. Um, and I think that maybe a simple example to explain this a bit better might be um, in relation to how we teach. Because uh, you can assume that um, online learning is a, an effort to essentially put up lectures and ask students to watch them and then repeat what we told them. Um, but that doesn't mean that a face-to-face -face course doesn't do the same, right? Just because you're in, you know, physically together, it doesn't mean that you're also not um, engaging in pedagogies that imagine the students as, um, in Paul Freire's words, empty vessels to be filled, right? So um, I think the conversation on pedagogy Critical pedagogy in particular is one that uh, we should be having regardless of the um, sort of space that we find ourselves in. So engagement is always a huge topic, right? And I hear from my own colleagues and I even find myself suffering the question a bit too. And when I'm teaching online and I see a bunch of black boxes with names or I see the mm -hmm. chat box and I can see them that they're there, but they're not really what I would consider interacting or engagement. Um, are there any thoughts you might have on how we may even shift our perspective on what that means? And then how do we go about finding new ways of in, employing engagement? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, no, there, there's a lot of conversation around engagement and motivation and, and, you know, and getting people excited about, um, about their courses and wanting them to, you know, con contribute. Um, I think a lot of, um, a lot of that comes down to relationships and building relationships with students that, you know, say, um, you know, I'm here, I basically teach because I care about this topic and you're here either because, you know, you think this topic is interesting or because it's, you know, it's a required course and you might not necessarily think that it's interesting. Hopefully the first one. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people are in courses for different reasons and yeah. they're there for one reason or another. Um, and, um, and I think sort of building a relationship on the fact that, um, there are some interesting things that I believe are happening in this course that I'm teaching. And I think that um, it would be worthwhile to explore them together. Uh, but at the same time, even though I know quite a bit about this topic, I would remain open to what you know about the topic and what you bring to the classroom and what you bring from your uh, prior experiences in life. Um, I think that opens a space to um, 
talk about engagement beyond sort of an effort to, you know, get students talking in the classroom, but that sort of moves us towards a place where we can have conversations. And that's what I think engagement um, is really about conversations around um, a topic so that we can all develop sort of more nuanced uh, opinions and perspectives and more informed ideas about a topic. Um, so that's, I mean, I guess that's how I go about uh, some of these ideas. Um, and I often, you know, tell my students, um, you know, this is what I think about this. I'd love to know what you think about this. I often say, I have no opinion about this. I'd love to know what you think about this, or I'd love to know how sort of your work um, and your you know life relate to this, right? So, for example, say we're talking about um, I don't know, the participatory web and its in its relationship to education, right? I might I might start conversations with. Well, I'm sure you've, you know, watched YouTube videos, like, do they relate in some way to education? How do they relate? Like, have you ever used YouTube to fix your faucet? Like, how did that go? <laughs> you know, like, I, You'd be surprised how many people would do that. And then they call me as a plumber and go, yeah, can you come fix what I tried to fix? <laughs> yeah, and that would be me. That'd be like, <laughs> um, now have these aspirations about like, you know, fixing things around my house and like yeah you know, i'm probably gonna ruin everything here so i'm better off you know just paying someone to come for five minutes <laughs> yeah um but you know because um people have had experiences with some of these things inviting them and sort of appreciating that you know, they will talk about their personal experiences versus what, you know, the literature says about this thing. Sort of an invitation to um, engage in the phenomenological way with the topic. Uh, so we can sort of all start uh, moving together um, in the exploration of it. Um, I mean, that's how, I don't know, that's how I think about it. Um, I, some, tricks and tips, I guess, that I've used in the past, or maybe uh, by now they've become sort of standard practice for me is just this idea of social presence and making, you know, myself sort of um, approachable to my students and, um, and uh, in relatively, you know, informal ways, like, um, you know, we're on video right now. I know that this is a podcast, but you can see behind me that there's some books and there's, you know, it's my office. I don't have like a, um, you know, a, a fancy setup behind me, but it's like, it sort of reveals like who I am. Right. Mm. And, and I think building those relationships with students that are sort of, um, grounded on sort of who I am and, and what I stand for, um, I think helps in inviting students to, you know, share a bit about themselves too and feel comfortable to engage in sometimes some difficult conversations around the topics that we're studying. Yeah. And do you find that that, that takes time for your students to warm up to, or do they tend to fit into that pretty quickly? 
Uh, I think it varies, um, but I think students very quickly figure out my approach to, mm. to teaching and learning. I think students generally do it with everyone. Mm. Um, uh, now, whether you know whether they uh, embrace sort of a similar approach or how they approach it, I think varies by student. But but very quickly, sort of, I think students recognize how we as faculty approach our classes and how uh, you know approachable we are or not. Yeah. Do you, do you find that COVID is helping uh, post secondaries expand their perspective on online education, or or do you find that? Well, I don't. I know you you can't <laughs> speak for every post secondary education in the province, but I'm I'm just wondering in your experience uh, with the background that you have, are you seeing that perspective broaden? So I've seen that institutions in Canada overall and another place as well um, are recognizing the value of uh, various practices that they didn't engage with in the past. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, there are numerous things that uh, I've heard people say that we will continue doing afterwards, whatever that, whatever afterwards means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, in the, in the beginning of this, we used to talk about a new normal. I'm not quite sure what that actually mm -hmm. means right now. Um, but yeah, numerous institutions, um, that I've talked to will continue with online learning offerings or with, um, online recruitment or with various like technologies that they've adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's also recognition of various practices that institutions have engaged with um, that uh, they're sort of eager to continue. The like ideas around flexibility, I think are really important. I think both faculty and administrators are recognizing the value of flexible offerings mm -hmm. um, and, and the value that that has for students and for their own institutions, for their own lives as well. Right. Um, I don't, that's not to say that people are not eager to get, um, back into physical classrooms. I think people are, mm -hmm. um, I don't think we're in a sort of environment where we're gonna have a sort of a radically different online environment sort of post pandemic. Um, but I think it's going to be different. I think it's going to be more um, um, more flexible in many ways, but also more nuanced. Um, more, I think it will definitely involve more um, mindful sort of approaches to online learning mm -hmm. for particular areas. Like some areas might be more inclined, some institutions might be more inclined to continue. Um, others might see it as a sort of add-on. Um, it's going to be a more complicated environment. And I think personally, I think that's that's worthwhile and interesting. I think uh, questioning sort of our, um, the environment that we were in before March is a good thing. <laughs> because we know that there were problems with uh, that environment. We know that, you know, higher education um, 
was inequitable. We know that it left uh, many people behind. Um, so thinking about sort of the future with that lens, I think is, uh, is worthwhile. I think many people are recognizing that. Um, and even going through the pandemic, I think people have recognized that the effects of the pandemic are, um, are, are uneven and unequal and different people are impacted in different ways. Um, so sort of what the near future holds, I'm, I'm hoping that it holds sort of more opportunities um, for people who are not as well served in, you know, our earlier sort of higher education system. Yeah. It's almost like we've, we've been forced to think of all of these huge issues all at once, right? I mean, equity and access and diversity and all these things have been important for a very long time. And some faculty members, some institutions, I think have been doing a, a, a good job of trying to answer those questions and others have been putting it off to the side saying, we'll get to that later when we have time and money. Um, and I wonder if COVID has forced all of that to the, to a needle point now where, you know, any one of those issues is a big issue to tackle, I would think. But, uh, yeah. And I think I've heard this from a number of people and it's, I mean, it's, it's evident, I suppose, uh, that, you know, higher education is facing a number of challenges and tensions. Um, and you, know, you would often hear people in the past say, oh, we're at a sort of an inflection point or a junction or a junction. And, you know, we, there's financial pressures, there's um, technological pressures and so on and so forth. And I think what the pandemic has done is that it has accelerated some of those tensions. So, right we are now much, we're dealing with them in a much faster fashion than what many of us have anticipated. Mm. Um, right. And, um, you know, my advocacy for like flexible learning and for, um, open education and for sort of alternative pedagogies, um, you know, was present before the pandemic, but the pandemic has made clear that this needs to happen sort of at a faster pace than, um, than what it used to. Mm -hmm. And that to deal with the challenges that we are facing, uh, we need to think of all these larger issues um, in the right now. Like you mentioned, issues of equity, issues of justice, mm -hmm. um, issues of inclusion, um, and so on. That's it's a hard tension to hold into place, right? Where it's a, it's almost like we're being pushed from behind to to deal with these very important issues, and yet we need to take time to think through these issues and make sure that we're doing it better. I'm not sure I'm not sure we're going to get it right all the time, and I'm, but I'm not sure we're not I'm not sure we're called to get it right all the time at the beginning, but to get better at doing it. Um, do, do you think there's some kind of tension there between people? Cause some, some people that I talk to in, in my circles of higher ed, they always bring up the idea of academic integrity, right? How do we make sure that this keeps the academic integrity in place? And my, my mind immediately goes to, well, how do you even define that? Right? Like, what does that look like for you? But, um, do you feel that there's this tension between it's, we gotta, we gotta deal with things quickly, but we also have to take time to think our way through this. Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I 
I think we've thought about many of these issues actually. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and if not us, like, you know, I'm not saying, you know, you and I, but like us as in like the, the capital U, um, but there are people who are experts in these issues, right? Around justice, around uh, critical pedagogy, around uh, the need or lack of need for, you know, surveillance technologies. I think that, um, yes, of course we need to sort of have conversations with people who have not been thinking about these things. But I think this is a time where we can, you know, in the same way that in our province, we sort of um, listen to what Dr. Bonnie Henry is saying about the pandemic and follow the guidelines of the provincial health officer. In the same way, we can turn to our colleagues in higher ed and say, hey, how do we deal with equity mm. um, in online learning context? What does you know, our research uh, to date say? And what, you know, what are some valuable practices that we know from what you've done that can carry us forward and, um, and can inform us at this point in time? Because um, to be clear, there are other actors at this point in time that see this as an opportunity for themselves as well. And I'm thinking of, you know, private companies, right, that have made their software freely available uh, for now and once institutions buy into them and embed them as their, you know, day-to-day -day practice, we'll say, okay, well, uh, the trial run is over. <laughs> It's time to pay up. <laughs> time to pay up. It almost sounds like a drug dealer when you put it that way. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, this, uh, not to, you know, describe this time as sort of a, um, with this sort of opportunistic frame, but I think it is a time period where if we don't take advantage of where we are right now to make higher education better for the future, mm -hmm. there are other people willing to step in much faster that might um, embed themselves in the systems in such ways that might not eventually lead to sort of the higher education system that we envision, the one that's more equitable, the one that's um, yeah, that serves the needs of our students, the one that um, provides a living wage for all faculty, the one that pays, you know, research assistants a fair wage, um, the one that, you know, isn't seeing uh, online learning as basically this delivery of content. Um, so, so, yes, we can think about academic integrity, but at the same time, we should also think about um, you know, all these other issues that are happening while we're um, thinking about these things. So to, to circle back to what you started with at the beginning, with reading the literature and going back decades and finding out that it's it really nothing new under the sun that, you know, these, there's a cycle of what happened in the seventies that they figured something out. And then in the eighties, they, they did the same 
not the same research, but they found out the same things were happening. What's, what's holding us back from learning from history and, and uh, looking for solutions? What's holding us back from doing that? Uh, so I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and, and what I've seen is that it, you know, this thing goes in cycles, right? Like sort of discovering and rediscovering the field. Um, and some people describe this as sort of an amnesia. So both Audrey Waters and Neil Selwyn referred to educational technology amnesia in the sense that we forget how things are and then we sort of rediscover them. Um, I think one reason for it is that uh, every few years we see newcomers to the field that imagine uh, that they've stumbled into something that is uh, new and it's new to them, right? But not necessarily new to the sort of broader community. We've seen it with MOOCs, right? Like MOOCs were a new thing, but in reality they were not. I mean, there were new elements to it, of course right? Mass scale, mass open scale in the beginning and so on. Um, but the idea of distance learning and the idea of interaction between students and students was not new. Um, so when newcomers come to the field, I see, I think they, uh, they imagine it as new. Um, now we're, some people say the, the blame is on them because they haven't done their job to you know, explore sort of the literature. Um, but others say that, you know, some of the blame lays with the researchers who haven't done the job of explaining to the broader public um, our work and put our work in, uh, you know, uh, journals that are read by us and then sort of us as in our colleagues, um, and then complain that the broader world doesn't know about it. Well, it's different. It's difficult for the broader world to know about it when that research is not accessible to them. Um, so, um, so yeah, newcomers to the field, sort of a rediscovery of the literature, uh, that literature not being accessible. I think there's an element of. Um, um, sort of um, um, hopeful thinking around technology that often uh, blinds people to failures of the past. Um, the field is, the field's history is rich in both successes and failures. Um, and it takes time to wade through all of that information, right? So, um, and in this day and age of sort of the Silicon Valley narrative of um, move quickly and iterate. I think it's easy to lose sight of what we've accomplished in the past. And it's at this point that we had some weird audio technical stuff happening. And uh, I do apologize for the difference in sound quality, but uh, it is what it is. And um, thanks again for listening. Take care. I think some of the shame is on me too for not taking the time to read some of the stuff that's out there. I mean, I, I get it. There's there's stuff in the buried in journals that hard to get at, but I wonder if, I wonder if there should be something included in the professional development of new faculty members that when they're getting into a field, it's like, I don't know how, how would we, I think of my own field of uh, trades and vocational education in the sense of, you know, they hire me as a subject matter expert to come and teach my trade. 
Um, but there's very little to zero uh, education on education. How, how do we, and even metacognition, how do I think about what I think about when it comes to doing my trade, right? Like use the example of your sink. I mean, I, I know what to do, but could I walk through what it means to teach somebody in, a, in an educational setting? Um, I know what it's like to apprentice somebody, but isn't that, yeah. it's, it's a little yeah, different when I you're think in the classroom. Yeah, it's both a systemic issue and an individual issue. I don't, you know, I don't want to give you the impression that this is sort of an, this problem can be solved just by individuals, you know, reading the literature, right? Similar to things like climate change, right? I'm not going to save the world by recycling, but I do it. Uh, but I know that there's larger corporations that pollute much more than I do that need to do their part. Similarly here, um, our institutions, when they sort of encourage a reward and operate within a system that says you need to place your research in this particular journals, then you know that limits it, right? So it's also an institutional responsibility to ensure that uh, there are other ways of knowledge sort of mobilization and dissemination that are rewarded that contribute to the common good um but yeah absolutely i think you know professional development and faculty preparation are i think paramount in you know preparing um people to teach and sort of know the field right we prepare people to um in their content area, like you mentioned, but we don't prepare them in pedagogy. We don't prepare them in how to teach in different contexts and so on. Um, and I think we've seen that clearly. And again, in March, and we've clearly seen the demand that was there at the time, right? In our province, BC campus was doing a lot of uh, webinars. Royal Roads was doing a lot of webinars. Nearly every institution I know of was doing something to help uh, people um, navigate the transition and teach better online. Um, and, and it became sort of evident at a mass scale that we don't do a good job with that. And those of us in schools of education have long, have been long saying that people need preparation in this. And, you know, and, and Tony Bates in BC have been saying this for years and years and years. People need to know how to teach online. We need to prepare these people to teach online. Um, and I think now there's a greater recognition of that need. Yeah, couldn't agree more. George, thank you so much for the time you've taken to be on the show today. I'm, I'm honored that you, you're here and uh, thankful for the insights that you've provided for me and, and the listeners. It's, it's been a, a great time. I just have uh, five quick questions to ask you. They don't need uh, quick answers, but, uh, and maybe you don't have answers for them. That's okay too. Uh, I call them the fab five just helps me get to know you a little bit better. And some of our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So uh, I think so. Um, well, first of all, I appreciate you having <laughs> me Tim and making, making time. Um, but yeah, let's try them out. Okay. All right. What's your favorite food? Favorite food is probably chili. I made a big batch of chili last night. 
Do you like it spicy or do you like it mild? Oh, I like it spicy. And uh, I love I love jalapenos. And before I put them in, I have to try them raw and see how they are. Oh, dude, you eat them raw. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, just to try a little bit and make sure that, you know, sort of get a little surprise in the sense of, is this really spicy now or is this just mild? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I don't know if you get time to watch movies or TV shows, but what's your favorite movie or TV show? Ooh, um, I've been watching more <laughs> this year. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm really bad with remembering names and titles. Um, but I really enjoyed a recent show. That recent show that was about chess, Gambit something. Oh, Queen's Gambit? Yes. Yeah. I love that show and binged it and watched it in, you know, two, two days. <laughs> <laughs> Do you play chess? Uh, I know how to play chess. I haven't played for many years. Um, and I'm probably not that great at it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm in good company then because <laughs> I play it, know how to play it, but I'm really not that good. Well, I like to play. Yeah. I play... Uh, I play backgammon though, and I'm pretty good at that. So um, I grew up playing backgammon with uh, friends and my dad and my grandpa. And um, yeah, whenever I go back home to Cyprus, um, there's always always a game with a with a cup of coffee. Nice. So nice. Yeah. Uh, I guess how long has it been since you've been home? I try to go every year um, in the summer or around May. Um, so I was going to go last May, but, uh, but I didn't because of the pandemic. So it's been uh, 16 months now or something like that. Yeah. When you go in the summertime, dude, that's like super hot down there. I guess you're used to it, right? Uh, yeah, because it's my favorite time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I, I like it when it's warm. Um, I, but you know, to be honest, I, um, I don't deal with July and August as well, um, nowadays, uh, but September is a perfect time. It's still hot, but it's not as hot. May is a perfect time. And, you know, I'm thinking 30 degrees, 32 degrees. Yeah. It's the perfect time, right? Cause at nighttime it cools down. So if it's, it can, it can be 32. I mean, I've even like at 35 in the day, but it's gotta, get, it's gotta cool off at night. Cause if you're in 35, like 24 hours a day for two weeks, like, I'm sorry, I'll just yeah. climb into a dehydration machine. Yeah. Then I don't need to. Yeah. As long as it's under 37 degrees or around, you know, so I used to live in Texas, right. And we had a few summers where it was hundred degrees. So what's that? 38 or something, hundred degrees for like, you know, two months straight. Um, and I mean, dry heat is fine, I guess in some ways, but once it gets humid, oh, it's just yeah, unbearable. It's just gross. Favorite music. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm answer this one. Uh, <laughs> I, it sort of depends on my mood. I don't know. Um, I think they call it the kids these days call it eclectic. I don't know. 
I, you know, I, I'll listen to pop if I'm like running, uh, if I'm trying to, uh, write, I might listen to something instrumental or depending on what I'm writing, I might go back to like hard rock, which is what I used to listen to when I was a kid. So yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with Metallica as I am with, I don't know, whatever is the newest pop. So I'm the same, yeah. I'm the same group as you. It depends what I want to do and my mood. If I'm in an angry mood, I'll listen to angry music. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite go-to tech right now? What, what do you, what do you like? What are you using the most and like the most? This headset that I'm wearing right now, which is comfortable in like my ears, um, cause it goes over the head, you know, it doesn't like go inside my ears. Um, and this really sort of comfortable mic that I have right here. I bought this a few years ago and, you know, I wasn't using it as much because I wasn't in as many meetings, but it came really handy. And around March and April where people couldn't get their hands on one of these, I just had one available. So it's, and I've heard myself speak, um, much more <laughs> these days than in the past. Uh, and this mic already makes a huge of a difference because it sort of blocks background noise. Uh, it does. You should get into podcasting, George. I've got the same headsets, not the same exact one, but I got a Sennheiser uh, headset and uh, I use the same mic. It's the Audio-Technica. I have to look at the brand and the number on it, but Audio-Technica, all you need is a boom, baby. You got, you got a podcast. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't think I would be great with a podcast. Actually, I, um, funny, funnily enough, I think I, I have this deep voice and I think I put people to sleep, but, um, but maybe if like the podcast is about, you know, helping people sleep after a server <laughs> off day, maybe, maybe there's a, a market there. We can get into ASMR stuff or something like that, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, let's tap the mic. There you go. There you go. We'll whisper into it. Um, last question: Most influential person in your life? Um, you can pick more than one if you don't want to just pick. One. <laughs> that makes it more difficult. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, you know, I mean, this year has been really interesting um, and and so unique and different different and, and hard and special and all of those things put together. Um, but um, I don't know there's been many people that I've appreciated having in my life this, uh, this last year, um, you know, family, which this wasn't part of our conversation, the podcast, but it was a conversation we we're having before the podcast, uh, which is, was around pets and then my dog and, you know, how big part of uh, my life she is. Uh, you know, my, my mom, um, colleagues have, you know, found myself more connected to over the last year and so on, uh, community, um, something that you probably don't know about me and this is going to be funny because once you hear it, but, but I'm vegan and, you know, most vegans told you that they're vegan. <laughs> it's like, there's a standard joke, right? Like. How do you know that someone's vegan? Well, they will tell you. They will tell so, you. <laughs> Within five minutes. So, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. So that community, you know, has been very great and supportive, um, and has done some great work, I think, over the last uh, year. Um, but yeah, I think um, you know, I'm grateful. I think for for community, uh, that's something that I've recognized over the last year. Um, so you know, it's hard just to pick a person or you know multiple people. So I'll go with community for my for my answer. Yeah, nice answer. Really good answer. Thanks again, George. This has been so much fun and very insightful, and uh, you're not boring at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, my voice, maybe my voice. <laughs> thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for making time. I enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I look forward to staying connected. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for taking the time and spending the attention on this episode with George. We hope you uh, really liked it. We hope that there was some value in it for you. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast. You can go to the website, praxispedagogy.com. And uh, in a few weeks, I'm going to have a sign up there for anybody who's interested in getting a bi-weekly or once a month newsletter just about stuff that we're looking at doing in uh, the Praxis Pedagogy world. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms. As well, please don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. That would help us out a great deal. Thanks so much for taking the time. We hope you have an awesome week and we'll see you next time. Take care.